You're listening to the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. On the show today, we had a chat with Ben Altham about federal politics. Then we spoke with Tom Greenwell, Canberra-based writer, about his essay in Inside Story called Journalism is in Peril, Can Government Help? And we looked at the press subsidies that exist overseas, particularly in the Nordic countries. Then we had a chat with Professor Pat Dudgeon, who's co-edited a book called Us Women, Our Ways, Our World. She also wrote a chapter in that book called Mothers of Sin, Indigenous Women's Perceptions of Their Identity and Gender. And we had a chat with Pat about that and the story of her grandmother and great-grandmother. Finally, Michelle Mountain joined me in the studio. She's program manager at the Centre for Contemporary Photography, and we spoke about the work of Andrea Grotzner. Andrea's work is currently on display at CCP in an exhibition entitled Tansti and Erbgericht. It's on until the 23rd of July. Yes, you are listening to 3RRRFM with uh, Amy Mullins on this show, Uncommon Sense. And I have with me Ben Altham, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda. And he joins me now in the studio. Hi, Ben. Good morning, Amy. How are you feeling? Good. Feeling much better. Thank you for filling in, by the way. I mentioned earlier. Yes, some great tracks that, uh, that you went through. To, to fill that spot. Yeah, we pretty much cleaned out the new releases pile. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that was awesome. Played it was. Some good chains, yeah, know. good work. Um, and uh, we're going to talk about federal politics, um, as we usually do. And there's a few things that have been happening. And obviously, uh, it's been about a year since the Turnbull um, One Government, Turnbull Team, Yes, that's right. Well, it was the 2nd of July, wasn't it, in 2016, um, when Malcolm Turnbull limped over the line to re-election. I think that's generous, Um, wasn't it? Like, just really barely got there and got pretty angry about yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. Extraordinary scenes there, uh, you know, 1 o'clock, 1 a.m. on yeah. the night of the Liberal Party function where, you know, visibly angry Turnbull almost berating mm. voters for not giving him a proper majority and, you know, like the, the angry Turnbull that he's worked so hard to hide from the public eye. Uh, you know, all of that kind of Turnbull personality came through there. And, of course, for the, the last year then he's been forced to live with the consequences of that botched election campaign. Uh, a very small majority in the lower house, obviously. He's been beholden to the right wing of the Liberal Party and he's had to tread very carefully constructing his Liberal Party backers, you know. And so mm. um, a lot of the, the last year has really been spent in damage repair, you'd have to say. And it's only been in the last couple of months that Turnbull and his key backers like Arthur Sinodinos and Simon Birmingham and Mitch Fifield have been able to get the more moderate Turnbullian kind of policy agenda onto the political front pages. Mm. It's a very recent development. It's really just since the last federal budget. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, some people would say that, well, the Liberal Party and a a particular arm of the Liberal Party would see Turnbull as a lefty Um, and, and... I think most Australians would perhaps not agree with them. 
So, I mean, I think the, the early popularity for Turnbull when he first took office from Tony Abbott in September 2015 was based, I think, on the public perception that he would drag the Liberal Party towards the centre, that he would, uh, you know, get rid of some of the more unpopular aspects of the Abbott government and its policies, like the austerity of the 2014 federal budget and also, you know, the, the extremely harsh rhetoric that Tony Abbott would regularly engage with on security, national security defence, Defence, immigration, things like that. It hasn't really turned out like that. You know, Turnbull has struggled to keep the right wing of his party in line um, and he's struggled to be able to implement his own agenda. Um, but a lot of the th- this has been happening behind the scenes and so we've seen a sort of internal civil war inside the Liberal Party for control of the Liberal Party apparatus, the Liberal Party machinery. That war has been won now. It's been won at least temporarily by the moderates, the so-called moderate faction. So these are people like Arthur Sinodinus and Mitch Fifield and Simon Birmingham. Mm. Uh, and they have now been able to cement their control over the Liberal Party, particularly in the eastern states. And uh, this is really the background to why there is uh, so many disgruntled Liberal Party people because for the Liberal Party people in the right of the party, they've basically lost power now. So it really is a different government to the government that Tony Abbott led. Mm, and hence why Tony He's raising his head above the parapet and getting a little bit arced up and excited in the last week in particular. So, I mean, I think as we've seen Turnbull really consolidate control of the party, we've also seen Abbott now emerge as the de facto kind of rebel rebellion or the Mm. renegade leader, you know, so he's now taking, I think, the most comfortable position for Tony Abbott, which is opposition leader, (laughs) to the government and... Uh, so much for his promise of uh, no wrecking, no sniping, no undermining. Of course, now Abbott's in full wrecking, sniping and undermining mode. Mm. It's quite uh, a thing to see, really. Um, And, I mean, one of the things that really got people going in the last week was uh, Christopher Pine's little gathering uh, with his more moderate liberal supporters to talk about how same-sex marriage is perhaps only around the corner and, uh, and that the moderate liberals might uh, change the position from a plebiscite to uh, a conscience vote, that was pretty quickly quashed, but perhaps that's only a a public thing? Well, I I guess the the pine, the leaked tapes of pine sort of celebrating the victory of the liberal moderates kind of shows you where things are at inside the liberal party. So the moderate faction now thinks that it's won Mm. and it's able to really show that off, if you like, with these kind of um, celebratory dinners, <laughs> Christopher <laughs> Pine headlining them. Um, and, of course, one of the policies that the moderates would dearly love to implement uh, would be same-sex marriage. Of course, there's a number of liberal moderates. There's a number of uh, gay liberals in, in the mm. backbench, uh, like Tim Wilson, who would love to see a vote on this go Dean through. Dean Smith. Uh-huh. Um, so, uh, of course, they're blocked from doing that by the right of the party. And when Turnbull took office... Uh, he made a promise to the right that he would not implement any same-sex legislation, that he would essentially block that from happening. And um, that's still Turnbull's position, but it's going to be harder and harder for him to keep the troops in line. And I think same-sex marriage, of course, it's a, a controversial social issue within the Liberal Party, but it's also a talisman. It's a sort of a symbol, really, of where things are at inside the factional balance. Yeah, it is very revealing, actually. And that's one of the issues that Labor has picked up in response. And uh, I think it was about 
couple of days ago that Labor came out and uh, did a bit of a US presidential thing and saying that within the first 100 days, if they became uh, government, that they would implement a few things, one including same-sex marriage, um, the other being uh, the 2% deficit levy, um, which would be on high income earners and that would become permanent whilst the debt exists and then another would be uh, restoring penalty rates but of course Labor actually initiated this investigation or inquiry or review of penalty rates in the first place so isn't it a little bit hypocritical? Yeah absolutely I think Labor you know Labor's now trying to talk about all of the policies it wants to implement should it win office but uh, you know well, there's a lot of water to flow under the bridge before that happens and these are promises that Labor can't necessarily keep, for example, if it doesn't control the Senate. So we'll, we shall see on things like that. In terms of industrial relations, I mean it was Labor, it's a Labor policy that the current industrial relations regime operates under. The Fair Work Act, the federal legislation on industrial relations, that's Julia Gillard's legislation from 2009. So um, it's very much the current labour system under which we are now seeing record low wage increases and, you know, a lot of power being transferred over to employers at the expense of unions and employees. So, you know, I think labour is trying to play catch up on industrial relations. Uh, I I think... um, you know, it's one thing to say, yeah, we'll, we'll legislate to, to reintroduce penalty rates. Um, but, you know, it is also Labor's policy. It was Labor's policy before the last election that they were going to abide by the umpire's decision. And, of course, removing penalty rates is the, the Fair Work Commission's decision. Yes, and we heard Tanya Plibersek come out and talk about uh, small business owners and that some of them have approached uh, Labor to say that they will choose not to um, implement a a reduction in penalty rates. That seems like a bit of a a furphy too to kind of come out and say, oh, well, of course we have supporters and, you know, not everyone has to implement this, this decision. It's a bit ridiculous, isn't it? Well, you've always been able to employ uh, to pay your employees more than the award, yeah. Amy. That's, that's well, always been the way it's worked. But lots of people would assume not. Do you know what I mean? We live yeah, in that sure. kind of economy where it's all about competition and uh, and it's quite remarkable to think that you would want to pay a good employee um, what you think they deserve to retain them. I mean, I think what this points to is a generational shift in the balance of power between employers and employees. You know, if you think about what things were like 30 years ago, we had a much stronger trade union movement in this country. Trade unions were able to pattern bargain. Trade unions had the right to strike. Two things that the current legislation rules out, for example. Um, So trade unions are much weaker now. They're not able to negotiate in a muscular manner with employers. Consequently, wages are not going up very high. You know, and those wage rises that strong unions were able to win back in the 80s and the 70s, they used to flow through to the rest of the workforce. Now, that's not happening either. And, of course, this is why the Reserve Bank is so worried about how low the wage increases in the country are because it's actually holding back the economy now. It is, and so much so that the governor wants us all to negotiate a a wage rise. 
Yes, except for his own workers. <laughs> uh, so this is a That's remarkable, a yeah, remarkable development. Uh, Philip Lowe, the Reserve Bank Governor, the boss of Australia's central bank, gave a speech saying uh, Australia's wages are too low. We need to have more trade unions being, you know, more militant so that we have higher wages and this will help the economy, give yeah. workers more spending power. But then he turned around <laughs> and then <laughs> didn't give his own workers in the Reserve Bank um, any more than a, uh, a below inflation wage increase. So Amazing. I think that, that kind of shows the problem here that mm. even the federal government employees like at the Reserve Bank, they're still only getting 2% kind of wage rises a year. Um, and, and so if these heavily unionised public sector employees can't win wage rises, and this is a direct result of federal government policy, by the way, then it's not surprising that in the private sector where more and more workers are casualised, they're on individual contracts, where they're not able to collectively bargain or where they have a weak union that's not able to bargain for them, mm. you know, it's not surprising that wages are static or even falling. No, it's not. That uh, also brings up the pay rise for federal politicians. They've been doing all right, haven't they, Ben? Yeah, well, unlike uh, ordinary workers, federal politicians have an independent body that sets their wages for them, the Remuneration Tribunal. So, uh, you know, they, they've got an independent process there that can mm. go out, go on and give them a wage rise. And, and that's very different, of course, from many workers. It is. And it's a different power thing too. I mean, there are a lot of politicians who made, formally made cases for their pay rise and that they'd worked super hard to get them. Well, if you look at what a federal backbencher is paid, this is a, a politician with no other responsibilities like a ministry or, you know, parliamentary secretaryship or anything like that. They pay $200,000 a year. Now, that puts them solidly in the 1%. Mm. You know? So our politicians are very well paid and I think they are actually out of touch with what ordinary Australians have to go through, you know, paying the bills and the rent. Definitely. And, Ben, another thing that's been happening and um, it's really surprising, I guess, to me, um, is that the Greens have had some very public divisions, particularly around the Gonski reforms. Um, now, Lee Rhiannon, who's a senator for the Greens, has been really singled out here as um, having allegedly undermined uh, the negotiations between the Greens and the coalition on that bill. What happened? Yes, good question. Many of us are scratching our heads uh, wondering what has happened to the federal Greens. Yeah. Uh, a bit of an implosion really <laughs> over the negotiations with the government um, over the school's funding package. So this all goes back to the government's much vaunted Gonski 2 schools funding package, which was passed, by the way. Education mm. Minister Simon Birmingham was able to get it through the by Senate. By one vote. Yeah, with, by doing a deal with the crossbenchers. In the end, he didn't need the Greens. Um, and the Greens really had split. They'd split over whether to support this legislation or not. Uh, so Leah Rhiannon, the New South Wales senator, who's considered pretty hard left, kind of, um, you know, almost a, a social democrat, even a socialist uh, by some people. Um, she's a has a reasonably um, hardline position on many of these issues. Um, she had opposed the, the Gonski legislation um, alongside, I might add, the education union, um, much of the Catholic education sector and obviously Labor. Um, whereas uh, the Greens leader, Richard Di Natale, he appeared to support the package or at least wanted to negotiate with the government over the package. And so there was a lot of disquiet inside the federal Greens party room over 
you know, what was Leary Annan doing? She was opposing this package at the same time that Di Natale, the leader, was trying to cut a deal with the government. And I think this points to bigger tensions within the Greens about the leadership of Di Natale and the direction of the Greens under his leadership. Mm, it does. I mean, what do you think about the final a negotiation and agreement that actually has eventuated because it is a subject of contestation but generally in the population more broadly people seem to think this is a positive thing but I guess as we've referenced a few weeks ago if you look into the detail of this it really is not as fair as it seems. No it's not and the more we dig into the Gonski 2 deal um, the less fair it seems. So I think the biggest problem with it at least as far as I can determine by talking to education experts and I might add that there's there's still a, a fair bit of debate going on about whether it's any good or not you know so you've got the Grattan Institute for example thinks that this is an excellent deal they're very pro this deal um, but then you've got the education unions who are very against it and some independent education analysts are also very against it and one of the things that's controversial about it is the so-called 80-20 split that it legislates for so the government will provide 80% of the funding at a federal level to the private schools, the non-government schools, and it will provide 20% of the federal funding to the public schools, the state schools. Now, there's no reason for that 80-20 split, and it would seem to be not needs-based, and it would seem to be unfair, because, of course, most of the need, most of the disadvantaged schools are in the state sector, then the public school sector. So why would the government be mandating that it will only put in 20% of the funding for those needy public schools? That makes zero sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. And this is the thing that many people have raised. It also puts a lot of onus back on the states and territories to provide the extra funding themselves. And the states and territories point out that, you know, firstly, this was a broken agreement. They'd signed a deal back in 2013 with the federal government under Julia Gillard. Um, that was actually a deal that they'd signed, you know, so the, the the coalition has welched on that deal. But secondly, you know, it means they've got to find hundreds of millions of dollars of extra funding. Um, and of course, you know, the, the area of government that has the money compared to the various levels of government is the feds. You know, you would have to argue that really, if we're talking about a fairer school system, it should go to where the need is greatest. And that's clearly in some of the smaller states and territories like Tasmania and Northern Territory. Mm. Well, it's also utilising tax money, taxpayers' money. Yeah, so it's one of these complex areas and it's hard to get any firm numbers on it. If you go to the federal government's schools calculator, for example, it's down. They've taken <laughs> it down. <laughs> so you can't, Transparency. Yeah, you can't <laughs> calculate what the deal will be for your local school anymore. Um, the government says it'll come back when they've crunched the new numbers. But, you know, the, the deal is passed. The bill is through and we still don't have any kind of firm hard numbers from the government about what it means. Mm, and interesting that that's one of their key uh, achievements, according to the government, is this Gonski reform package. It, it certainly is an achievement in the government's own reckoning. You know, they've got a, an important bill through the Senate, which they struggle to do throughout the life of the Abbott government. Um, so it's a big win for Simon Birmingham, the education minister. Um, it actually does deliver on, you know, key liberal support bases. So the private schools are very happy with this mm. deal. You can tell that by the fact that they've said nothing at all about Zero. it. Yeah. <laughs> they've been almost silent, Classic. which suggests that they have very few grievances. 
Um, and if we return back to the Greens, you know, this is, I think, what is driving the unrest within the Greens membership is this idea that the Greens were going to negotiate on what looks like a pretty bad deal for public schools. So the question then is, what was Richard Di Natale doing? Mm. Why was he trying to do this? Um, why didn't he just say no or hold out for a much better deal? Um, and, you know, it's also put the Greens in this sort of uncomfortable position of, on the one hand, they didn't even do the deal because Birmingham went and got the crossbenchers to, to sign up to it. But then it seems as though they are supporting this government bill at the same time. So, you know, where is the Greens' position on the Gonski 2 reforms? I've tried to find out. I've called Richard <laughs> Natale's office. Yeah. Haven't heard anything back. Mm, intriguing, Ben. Intriguing. Well, we'll have to look out for a policy position then. Yes, I'm going to keep asking, you know, it would be nice to know what they actually think, you know, and and so they've been really confused on this and I think this is because, of course, of the internal dissent that's going on. Yeah. They're very busy now um, disciplining Liriana and they've sort of suspended her from the party room, which, of course, simply gives her the liberty to go off and write opinion pieces for the Sydney Morning Herald and be very vocal and critical of Richard Di Natale. And that's what happens when you cut loose a backbencher, as Malcolm Turnbull (laughs) has found. (laughs) And it's a perfect spot to finish on, Ben. (laughs) Thank you for that. Thanks, Amy. No, it was wonderful to have you as usual. Uh, That was Ben Eltham, National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, who is our regular guest to talk federal politics. You're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. And I have with me on the phone from Canberra, Tom Greenwell, who is a writer and has written an essay for Inside Story. Hi, Tom. Hi, Amy. How are you going? Good, good. How are you? Yeah, great, thanks. That's great. Thank you for having me on the program. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, I really read your piece with great interest. Um, As I mentioned before, it's called Journalism is in Peril, Can Government Help? Uh, And you really do something which is quite rare, I think, in modern journalism in Australia, is actually putting Australia's experience into a a global context um, and particularly focusing on policy and evidence. So I'm really excited to go through this with you and really tease out uh, press oh, subsidies. Thank you. Very no, my pleasure. So let's talk about um, first of all the Australian media landscape. For those who really aren't um, aware of just how limited the competition is, where are we at with that? Yeah, so I think there's two really salient facts about the Australian landscape. Um, the first is that this decade. Uh, we've lost about 2,500 to 3,000 journalist jobs. Um, so that's about a quarter of our total journalistic capacity. Um, so the ability of, of Australian journalism to keep governments accountable, to um, expose corruption and to, to perform that really important democratic function is being curtailed. Um, and, and that's really due to the, the massive collapse in advertising revenue as, um, as news has moved online. And then, and then, as has long been the case, we have a, a highly concentrated uh, media ownership. And, and, you know, really in terms of newspapers, we have a, a duopoly um, and, 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 and Murdoch controls, you know, almost two-thirds of our, uh, of our newspapers. 
Yes, and is one of the uh, consequences really of advertisers um, moving away from newspapers in particular that content also changes to perhaps suit or fit this kind of new business model where there's, you know, articles are online and um, the way that then newspapers receive revenue through that, uh, that online platform is through clicks. I mean, we've seen a change to me in the type of content that's actually produced in Australia's media now and that perhaps it's not as um, is investigative as as past journalists and uh, and journalism used to be right absolutely and I think you know Melbourne listeners will well appreciate that they've noticed the the age uh, just shrink in size um, you know in recent years and and seen great journalists like Michael Gordon being be made redundant so you just don't have um the the person power to to be covering stories with the breadth and with the depth that um we've become accustomed to and and you know the fundamental thing here is that these kind of services that good investigative journalism perform um which really um enhance democratic participation and ensure that we have low corruption are benefits that we all get uh irrespective of whether we actually buy the paper and that means that there's always going to be a tendency for um these uh this kind of service not to be um, purchased in the quantity that a healthy democracy needs so yeah like i think you're absolutely right we see you know a lot of clickbait a tendency towards reproducing press releases the whole fake news phenomenon um these are all things that you know are really um becoming increasingly concerning as journalists are being laid off and you simply don't have um the kind of um coverage uh, that we once did. Mm, indeed, and specialist knowledge uh, that journalists used to bring to particular policy areas right. if we're looking at um, politics. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and that's, you know, I think... Um, one of the one of the really concerning things that are happening at the moment that a lot of the journalists that are being made redundant are people with enormous experience and they do have that um, long view and they do have uh, you know a deep acquaintance with with the areas they're covering. Mm, and they've got a bit of a public memory, really. Um, and and it did come up, I think, in one of uh, the debates that I've seen recently that those journalists would actually traditionally be the, the people mentoring new journalists to pass on that institutional and public memory. And yet now, you know, there's far fewer of them. And I guess that tradition and that knowledge is less likely to be passed on. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's you know, and I think this is a problem that has been, um, you know, been around for a good 10 years now. Um, I think Eric Beecher was out very early uh, in the mid-noughties kind of flagging that the digital media economics are such that all the advertising revenue that used to fund um, this great journalism, the specialisation, the training of young journalists, um, you know, really deep investigative journalism was going to go elsewhere and and we've just seen that um happen over the course of the last decade and and obviously the um the most recent announcements of further layoffs at fairfax mm. in may just uh just kind of we're, we're a marker of of a of a long-term trend 
Yes, absolutely. You you raise a great point there. This is not a new issue and it's a bit sad actually that it's taken this long to get there. Um, but we do have a select committee on the future of public interest journalism, which I guess is um, really what we're referring to here is that kind of journalist that is in the public interest in the interest of democracy and transparency. And this piece um, it really tends to fit within this context and debate that has been, um, I guess, fleshed out by the committee um, that's been set up in the Senate. And and you do reference some of the submissions that have been made uh, in this process. Um, in terms of now going to your piece and looking at um, you know where you dive into, what has been the case overseas, particularly in Europe, when it comes to press subsidies? Because that is not a new phenomenon and it did arise uh, within a particular context over there when um, their newspaper, um, I guess, their newspapers were declining and we saw a, a stark uh, decrease in the number of newspapers, um, some of those quite small. But what did they do? What did, um, you know, various countries in Europe do to really right. change this? Right. Yeah. And I mean, like, we've long recognised that there's a problem in Australia. But what's really significant about the future of public interest journalism Senate Committee is that it's the first time that politicians uh, in living memory have said, well, we maybe government can be part of the solution here. And I think it's a credit, um, if nothing else, to, to Sam Dastyari and Scott Ludlam and Nick Xenophon and other, others involved in creating the Senate Committee that, you know, we, we, Australia's moved into a new... is moving into a new space, I think. And, and if we look overseas, um, we see that for decades, for over half a century, um, numerous European countries have subsidised their newspapers, um, you know, particularly the Scandinavian countries, but, but not only. Uh, for instance, Britain provides a complete exemption on the value-added tax, which is normally 20%, so that's a really significant form of support. And in about 10 European countries, we actually see direct subsidies. And what they've tended to do is target weaker newspapers and actually help them survive, because the whole problem with uh, 20th century newspaper economics was a tendency towards monopoly. Once you became a dominant player, well, you've got really high first copy costs, but, but the, the, the greater your circulation, the lower your average cost of producing a newspaper, so you're really able to outcompete weaker players, and that destroys competition and diversity. So take Sweden. They, targeted, they, they still target a subsidy to those newspapers with less than 30% market share. And what we see in those countries is remarkable media diversity. So I say in the article, uh, the, the, the top eight uh, media companies in Sweden control 82% of their market. Now, you know, from a country where two newspaper companies control 90% of our, our newspaper market, it's just kind of extraordinary. And I suppose what I'm, one of the things I'm, I'm hoping to do with this article is just share how really common and widespread the practice of subsidising um, newspapers has been internationally. And as Australia kind of explores what we might do on this front, there's a huge uh, experience that we can draw on and, and learn from.
There definitely is. And although there are some differences in um, the initial circumstances or context from which these subsidies emerged, um, it is a great case study that, uh, and there are various options, as you say, um, on the table. There's the UK model, there's also the Swedish one. Um, and in particular, when you referenced the, the Swedish model, um, it has some interesting points in it that uh, they established a Swedish press subsidies council, uh, which is which oversees these subsidies, um, and that it's independent and uh, at arm's length from government. However, I guess government's role is that they have made sure that um, this particular subsidy is funded by a tax on advertising. I mean, that is quite close to some of the discussions we've been having recently around, um, you know, potentially a tax on companies like Google and Facebook. Could you expound, I guess, a bit on the Swedish case and, and what makes it so compelling? Yeah, yeah, I think it's really interesting because I think a natural response to the idea of subsidising uh, commercial media is a concern that um, governments will use it to favour their friends in the media and intimidate opponents and, and use it to try and stop ad- adverse coverage. And what Sweden shows, and in fact every country that, that uses subsidies shows, is that... Um, that that doesn't turn out to be the experience. So, as you said, Sweden ha- does two things. It, it, it first of all, it has the body that disperses the subsidies to newspapers is at arm's length from the government of the day, and it disperses them according to a pretty objective, explicit criteria, which do- which means it doesn't actually have that much discretion anyway. You know, it goes to newspapers as a, like with less than 30% market share that have a minimum circulation and they have a requirement that uh, they produce at least 51% original editorial content. So there's, uh, there's uh, criteria like that. Um, so it really is pretty objective. Th- those, those publications that meet that criteria get the subsidy. And so those two things... Um, mean that, you know, Sweden uh, is, is up there in the top five freest kind of media, press, press or media in the world in terms of the Reporters Without Borders um, World Press Freedom Index uh, and, and other uh, European countries uh, that have subsidies uh, similarly consistently rank highly in those indices of press freedom. So, if anything, there's actually like a correlation between subsidies from government and press freedom. There certainly isn't a correlation between any kind of... between the use of subsidies and inappropriate interference by government. It's quite amazing, really, that um, that it is that clear, even if it's a correlation only and not causation necessarily. It is um, is very stark to see that there hasn't been uh, any kind of real uh, clear abuse of that system. Um, and it's also interesting that really there's across-the-board support from the, the key parties in these countries that have subsidies, and that's also one reason why they've been so successful is its constancy and, and multi-partisanship. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, for this story, I spoke to a professor at Yale. I spoke to somebody from the London School of Economics, uh, uh, scholars in, in Sweden and Denmark and Austria. And I asked them all, you know, is there any example where just an example where governments have used subsidies inappropriately to, to fear or favour uh, journalists um, or, or, or even the appearance of such and, and none of them could think of it think of an example uh, and, and, and you know similarly yeah, as, as you say there's um, often uh, you know quite uh, support for these subsidies well across the political spectrum for instance uh, I spoke to a scholar in Austria and he talked about how it's you know, their subsidy scheme has support um, from the Greens, but also from the, free, the right-wing Freedom Party. Um, and these, uh, you know, schemes have been in place for, for half a century and they've, they've remained in place as, as power has oscillated between left and right. So I think that all, again, um, confirms a, a very clear picture that whatever else you think about the idea of subsidising the media, it's not problematic in terms of uh, some way diminishing press freedom. No, and I mean, it really is, a, it provides an immeasurable value uh, and that's potentially why it is such a difficult area and difficult to create such a robust business model in this day and age. And one of the reports that you referenced by Robert Picard uh, highlights the timeline of the Nordic model and just um, how these subsidies, how and when they had impact um, and that it noted that in the 1960s there was a wave of newspaper deaths uh, in Western nations and there was much, I guess, uh, consideration by government and examination of the issue before they got to a point of uh, establishing subsidies. But once they did, um, you know, it shows that around the 90s, um, you know, so it was about a 20-year period that newspaper, as they say, mortality uh, returned. So this, is, this isn't a quick fix. Um, it's, a, it's a bit of a medium to long-term um, policy aim and, and strategy. Do you think that might be a reason why uh, Australia is, has not necessarily been so successful at it yet is that we haven't really been looking at this issue with a long-term view? I think the, uh, you know, Sweden's kind of intervention, they, they started their subsidy scheme about 1970 and they were responding to what was a worldwide trend in the newspaper industry towards monopoly because of, because of the economies of scale in the, in the industry. And um, the you know, I think if you, if you ask yourself, why did Australia never implement that kind of policy? Why did it never really receive much consideration, at least as far as I'm aware? Um, you've got to consider the fact that if you targeted subsidies towards weaker newspapers with less than 30% market share, you're probably uh, almost exclusively propping up competition to Murdoch-owned newspapers. Um, and, and I think uh, it's, it's, it's not unfair to, to suppose that that such a proposition wouldn't have got a very fair run in the Murdoch media and, uh, and politicians might have wanted to steer clear from it. Um, and I think that's part of what's interesting about this moment is that if we were to introduce subsidies now, we're trying to solve a, a slightly different problem than what Sweden faced in 1970. In fact, Sweden is currently conducting its own uh, inquiry into the future of journalism because it hasn't been immune from, from um, the kind of forces uh, that 
that we're experiencing now as, as news has moved online. And, um, you know, the intervention that we would make now is much more likely to be a general subsidy that doesn't necessarily, isn't biased towards uh, weaker uh, publications or publications with smaller circulations. But, you know, like the Finkelstein inquiry in 2012 recommended against subsidies at that point in time, but it also proposed a news media council and a productivity commission inquiry both of which never happened and it suggested that that those bodies um, both explore the idea of subsidies further and in so doing they they raised the idea of basically um, compensating publishers for the, 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 the salaries that they pay for their investigative journalism units now, if you think about that kind of subsidy, that's going to go to News Corp as well as to Fairfax and, and private media and Swartz and everybody else. Um, it's really, it's just contingent on you providing investigative journalism and you get some kind of subsidy for your wages bill. But it's not going to um, somehow level the competitive playing field between... Um, you know, dominant and weaker market players. So, it's, and, and the point about that, I think it's, it's more politically plausible, right, to be to be possibly proposing a subsidy scheme where where everyone's a winner to some yeah. extent, including um, the most powerful media operators. Seems like a, a very special Australian approach to things. More recently, too, that everyone has to be a winner. Um, <laughs> and yeah. one one of the things it makes me think of is that um, perhaps it is the right time in the sense that we're having these discussions about the demise of neoliberalism and perhaps that the market doesn't always know what's best and isn't always going to fill the gap and that government intervention is needed in some circumstances and we have seen that recently particularly in the energy debates. Um, Do you think that perhaps the timing is more ripe to consider government-led interventions now because of that development? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's fascinating. If you think, like, at the start of this century, the idea of uh, a New South Wales right uh, ALP senator proposing, you know, or, or making positive noises about government uh, intervention in the newspaper industry is just unthinkable. And, you know, circumstances have really changed. But it's nevertheless fascinating that, um, that you know, our, our political culture has moved on. Um, and it's, but it's also just a pragmatic response to to the circumstances we're faced with. We, it's pretty clear, you know. I think it's pretty un- incontrovertible that we need um, good, deep journalism uh, to make democracy function well, and we see that's clearly under threat. Now, there's always, there's always. I mean, uh, it's dynamic. So, like, we'll see over the medium term how newspapers respond to these pressures and 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 because really what we're moving into is an era of where of majority subscription revenue where where newspapers used to be you know in australia 80 percent of their revenue came from advertising um it's we're moving into a situation where the majority of their revenue is coming from subscribers and that's uh, that provides a different set of set of incentives and um Newspapers are starting to respond to those incentives, but no doubt will continue to do so. So I think, um, you know, there's that point. And there's also the point that subsidies are only going to help at the end of the day. I mean, subsidies in Sweden are, um, three, you know, about 3% of total industry revenue. 
if you think of you know collapse of advertising which is about two-thirds of the, the industry's revenue in Sweden and, and four-fifths in Australia. Su- subsidies are only going to help with that. They're not going to be uh, a silver bullet. So, so I think we're still very much thinking in terms of a, a kind of a mixed market approach, but subsidies seem like they could be a sensible and, and pragmatic response to, um, to the circumstances we're faced with. Absolutely. It really, um, it's a new idea in the sense that it's palatable um, and, and right. could actually be palatable to many people. And that's what I think this essay really highlights is that uh, it's not unprecedented and it's actually been quite successful. And although it's not the solution um, by itself, it certainly has made a difference. Um, and also, I found it interesting, though, that, uh, as you say, historically around 75% of adults uh, in Sweden reported reading a newspaper each day, which was twice the amount of Australia and the UK. So there was a little bit of a difference, although even their readership um, has declined in, in recent years. Um, when we look at the American example, um, we've seen that the subscription rates there very recently have gone up. And obviously, the New York Times has been talking about how successful they've, Trump has been for them, really, in um, increasing their revenue. What do you think um, about like players like the Washington Post and the New York Times, who seem to have had a bit of an uplift in um, recent years without subsidies, what kind of, um, what do you think has been influential there? Because I did read a piece in the Washington, well, I don't think it was in the Washington Post, but it was about the Washington Post and that they've created other revenue streams such as creating in-house software and technology that they could sell on to other newspapers um, to prop up their investigative journalism. Right, yeah, I think, you know, there's, there's, there's the cultivation of um, various different um, revenue streams and around the world I think we see newspapers engaging in, in e-commerce as well and, and various different services. But actually I think um, it's a useful perspective to remember that in the 19th century newspapers um, got most of their revenue from subscribers. It was only of, of about, about 1910 that um, advertising started to be the, the dominant source of income for newspapers. And in the 19th century, the, there, was al- there was also a tendency for newspapers to be more partisan in character. And that kind of um, makes sense. If you're trying to persuade people to part with their money for their newspaper, you want them to, to value it really highly. And one of the way people, uh, one of the ways people are going to um, really feel a strong affinity with their newspaper is um, if it if it reflects their political worldview. And and you know you see that in in, a, in the Scandinavian countries where you have um, a real diversity and you have newspapers which are much more closely aligned with political parties or, or political worldviews. Um, and I know, you, you know, there's, there's obviously a lot of problems associated with um, filter bubbles and echo chambers and, and, and people talking to themselves. But the thing about a more partisan character in a newspaper is that that kind of news ultimately encourages people to participate in politics. They say there's a, you know, there's a problem. We have to intervene. Uh, uh, we need to get involved to change the course of events. And so... I, you know, I think if there's a shift towards a more partisan um, character in news, that won't 
be what won't be completely unhealthy. No, I mean, the point really is that it's about diversity and that's exactly what it creates is a diversity of viewpoints. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, yeah, like a, a media ecosystem where you have, uh, a, you know, a plethora of perspectives and people are... Um, are exposed to that, that that the diversity is a really positive thing. Mm. And just finally, you talk about in the piece this, um, perhaps you anticipate, I guess, some arguments against uh, this mode or strategy um, and that when we're looking at institutions like the ABC, some people might say, well, you know, the government's already providing enough support um, to journalism and public interest journalism through the ABC. Uh, But you kind of have a different view on that. And I think it's um, quite useful to, to, I guess, recount or share uh, with everyone, you know, just why it might actually be even in the benefit of the ABC to fund other organisations. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, just just to finish off uh, 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 the previous point, I would, you know, you mentioned like in Sweden, there's very high rates of newspaper readership. The 75% of people have historically reported reading the paper every day. Well, I think that's partly connected with the fact that they have uh, a greater diversity and, and and a more partisan press, because. People, a broader group of people are more likely to feel a strong affinity with at least one newspaper and therefore want to read it all the time. So you have a deeper engagement with news. Um, but look, uh, with respect to the ABC, I mean, I, I think in policy terms, we have, we have we, the market's failing in, in producing public interest journalism. Um, you know, it would be very good to increase funding to the ABC, at least reverse the cuts in um, successive budgets. Uh, and I, I would absolutely support that. Um, but I, I guess there might be a pragmatic political case that um, at this point in time, subsidising um, private... Uh, there's a diversity case for subsidising private news providers. And it also might be more politically palatable. And, and in the medium to long term... Uh, it perhaps could um, help shift the culture where, uh, to a point where the idea of receiving taxpayer funding is not, you know, used ad nauseum to attack the ABC if, if in fact, um, you know, all media players are receiving some support from the government. So it might actually in the long term make it easier politically to uh, increase funding to the ABC um, and placate some of the right-wing opposition to it. Yes, that's particularly pragmatic and also has a a good outcome in the end. And it's also important to remember that uh, industries like the the coal industry have been heavily subsidised over the last few decades. So um, it's certainly not such a big deal to even talk about uh, an industry like the media um, actually, you know, deserving or needing um, subsidies. Yeah, right. I mean, there's lots of... Um, there's obviously risks, and, and, and it's a question of designing subsidies appropriately. Um, and, and, and actually, I think one of the attractive features about the model that was floated in the Finkelstein review was that it, it suggested having a kind of set budget um, to support investigative journalism, which would be spread more thinly the more, the more of it there was and would be provided... 
you know, in, in greater quantity if, if there were fewer players providing investigative journalism. So it was, in effect, uh, it, it had a built-in mechanism to... Um, respond to the extent of the problem. And, you know, I think there's, there's, there's lots of issues about um, designing subsidies correctly, but, um, you know, the, the European experience really shows that they uh, are very, have been very helpful in producing a vital and diverse news media. Um, and so I think that evidence should be taken on board. Yes, it should. And hopefully it will um, through this Senate committee process. Uh, Thank you very much, Tom, for joining us. And it's just been fascinating to chat about this with you. Oh, thank you, Amy. Thanks for the chance to chat. That was Tom Greenwell, a Canberra-based writer, and he's written an essay for Inside Story. And if you want to head on to Inside Story's website, it's insidestory.org.au. And the piece is called Journalism is in Peril, Can Government Help? Uh, I'll be posting up the link to that essay uh, later today on our social media sites. Uh, But yeah, it's really, really interesting to see that press subsidies are definitely not a new idea and certainly have the potential potential to assist in um, the real crisis that Australian journalism is facing at the moment. So thanks to Tom Greenwell for joining us. And you are listening to 3RRRFM, the show Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. As promised, we have with us a very special guest, Professor Pat Dudgeon, who is, uh, she's a psychologist and a research fellow at the School of Indigenous Studies at the University of Western Australia. And she's co-edited a book called Us Women, Our Ways, Our World. And um, it's actually, it's out through Magaga. Magabala Books. Um, There are four wonderful um, editors of this book. Pat, uh, as I mentioned, Jeannie Herbert, Jill Milroy and Darlene Oxenham. And it has contributions from a range of uh, Indigenous women and community leaders. And uh, I'm welcoming Pat now. Thanks for joining us, Pat. My pleasure, Amy. Happy to be here speaking about the book. Great. No, it's wonderful to have you. And uh, you've written a chapter in this book, um, which I really found hugely illuminating and um, and fascinating uh, because it's, although the whole book really is covering um, Indigenous or Aboriginal women's identity and, and a range of facets of that identity, um, your particular chapter called Mothers of Sin, Indigenous Women's Perceptions of Their Identity and Gender is particularly compelling and, and it does feature your own um, family's experience as well. So thank you for writing it, first of all. Thank you. Yes, I, I'm pretty proud of that um, that, that chapter and um that I based actually I did my PhD looking at women's um, Aboriginal women's identity um, uh, and and gender identity as well and their their perceptions of their gender. So um, a lot of the history there, you know, I always say that you know it's only recently since we and we still live um, a lot of our people live in very disadvantaged situations, but it's only been recently that. Um, that that legislation that was so draconian, um, you know, was done away with. My when I read my grandmother's native um, welfare records, and here I say, you know, the only good things that came out of those terrible times is they kept meticulous records, which we now can access. Um, 
So to read those records and to see how they had perceived my um, grandmother and my great-grandmother, and that's the term, they said that um, these two women were the original mothers of sin of the uh, North, which was quite dramatic. And, and it boiled down is that they, they um, were headstrong. They wanted to live their lives and not have to ask permission to, to um, you know, move towns, not have to toe the line. And that's what um, that legislation was all about at the time. It was, you know, to absolutely control Aboriginal women or Aboriginal people, but particularly women. Exactly. And one of the lines um, in this chapter is that you say, and Martha is your uh, grandmother and uh, and Lillian being great-grandmother? That's correct. Yeah. Yes. So you say Martha and Lillian's crime was that they were Aboriginal women who wanted to live a free life. And you open the chapter talking about the kinds of... Um, horrible abuses that were um, um, perpetrated sorry, against uh, Indigenous women in particular and the sexual exploitation of of Aboriginal women. Um, And Could you share with us, I guess, from the colonial period, the types of sexual exploitation that you write about? Yeah, look, um, absolutely. And, and, you know, women were sexually exploit, ex, exploited, but also sometimes they chose to grow, go, you know, to have relationships with colonisers as well. So you, you need to keep that um, in mind. Mm, but but it perhaps was a, a power imbalance. Yeah, it was a strange situation because even if if they chose to, um, you know, if people chose to be together, there were actually laws um, forbidding it. So, um, but the the reality was, as the frontier opened up, it was um, the it was a man's world. Um, well, a, a, a white man's world. So um, women were really um, sought after. But on the other hand, um, if if a, a, a man tried to marry a um, Aboriginal woman, it was really looked at, down upon. He'd be, um, I think, it was illegal in in many states, and certainly he'd be ostracised. Um, so um, so it was quite quite schizoid in in some respects. But for Aboriginal women, as I say in that chapter. Um, the issues that you know, as as all Aboriginal people, we suffered colonisation. Um, you know, t- uh, having our freedoms um, taken away, um, uh, culture disregarded and devalued, being um, removed um, from our home countries, and so on. But Aboriginal women had um, another layer of burden, and that was sexual exploitation, also um, a, a patriarchal. Uh, uh, worldview that came um, in on them and and changed um, you know their roles as women in 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 their society. So I believe that a lot of the sexism that um, they suffered too was from. Uh, uh, the colonisers who came into the country. Mm. Indeed, and that's a really important distinction that you make. And I'm really interested also to compare, I guess, that prior to colonialisation, what was the gender dynamic or relations between Aboriginal men and women as you saw it or see it? Okay, well, um, look, it's really contested and, and I read so many um, anthropological texts, etc., etc., including, you know, what I could um, what I could glean from our own women and women's stories. But I believe from, um, you know, reading, reading all the, 
the theories about it, that it was all, it was a two-sexed um, society. So um, men had their roles and women had their roles. Women also had spiritual roles and responsibilities for land, you know, spiritual responsibilities. And I think one of the colonizers' stories was that um, that Aboriginal women were just uh, 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 slaves and chattels of um, the men and that they had no power, And which isn't um, true, you know, that's been challenged. And in recent times, with Diane Bell's Daughter of the Dreamings, where she did a big, uh, um, you know, a, a big... Um, research looking at um, uh, Aboriginal women in Alice Springs, and that was very challenging at the time, but it was always there, the evidence was always there you know, uh, Phyllis Cavery wrote um, Aboriginal Women and, and um, spent time, she was an anthropologist in the 1930s who spent time with women in the Kimberley um, and looked at their roles so I think what I, you know, if I, I'm, I, I may say that I'm, a, uh, I think that the anthropologists who were studying um, Aboriginal people in the early times were mainly, I'd say, 99% male. Um, so they were looking at Aboriginal societies through their own um, white uh, uh, male gaze and and um, and putting all their bias and um, prejudice and, and you know worldviews into it. So of course they didn't see the value, what the things that women did or their sacred responsibilities and and um, and roles in there. So I think that was um, suffering. Um, with in a sense, Aboriginal women um, they had their um, their roles diminished by colonisation as well. Indeed, and the strength of this book is that it's giving Aboriginal women back their voice to be able to really correct um, yes. those biases that have definitely uh, existed. And you say that um, that in the frontier times, uh, women, uh, particularly Aboriginal women, were abducted, uh, and that that was quite a common practice um, to utilise yes. and abuse them basically um, for sexual services, and that. The, the really key part um, and the thing that you really uh, drive home here is that despite this history of oppression, many Aboriginal women have maintained then and now a strong sense of themselves and their sexuality. Um, in terms of your grandmother, Martha, who is, an, as you say, an extraordinary woman, um, has a really fascinating story. And I was hoping um, you could share some of the key aspects of her story with us and how that relates to um, her sense of self in a gendered and sexual way. Um, absolutely. Look, she she was she grew up on um, uh, the Beagle Bay Mission, as it was called then, um, and her mother Lillian had actually uh, been removed, so she was taken away from um, up near Fitzroy Crossing Way. She came from the Gidja group. Um, but she met and married um, uh, Willie Mungert, a, a Bardi man um, in Beagle Bay. And uh, my grandmother grew up there. She would have grown up in the dormitory system. So um, uh, children were taken away at certain ages and they were put into the dormitories of the mission. But the good thing, and for my mother as well, who also grew up in Beagle Bay, is that they did grow up on their home country. They were able to see their relatives. Um, so that was a really important thing. A lot of children were taken away and removed to to uh, different um, uh, uh, locations altogether. And when I was reading the Native um, Welfare Records, 
they were going to set my mother and her sister away um, down south to Perth, to a, um, a reserve here. And that would have been um, really, uh, well, that would have changed my family history, obviously. Um, but to remove a person from their, um, you know, their own family, their extended family and their country was a, a terrible thing. Um, in any case, Martha grew up um, in um, uh, Beagle Bay, Broome areas. Um, she would have had to get permission to um, find employment. And I think the Native welfare officers in Broome were particularly authoritative and particularly zealous. So how they implemented the legislation concerning Aboriginal people would have varied from area to area, but I believe that um, they were particularly um, conscientious about their roles and, and zealous in, in, in Broome. Um, uh, Martha um, uh, uh, fell in love with a um, Chinese pearl diver and um, and she was pregnant and that was my mother and the native welfare officers tried to get her to um, to t uh, go to court and to to talk against her her, her Chinese um, lover uh, he would have been deported because you know there was this white Australian policy then yes um, they wanted their agenda was to, uh, to get him to pay child ma maintenance um, and she refused to to testify so I think you know for a woman back in the 19 early 1930s to refuse authorities when she's grown up into in a mission where you know authorities had a lot of power would be a very bold and brave thing so she refused to do that in the first instance um, later on she um, they parted ways and um, she was going out she was uh, 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 seeing another man and I was particularly struck then because um, the native welfare um, officer came to see her and he um, gave her a lecture and told her you know that she shouldn't be going out and seeing men and so on and so on she's a grown woman and she just said um turned around and said to him you know if i if i want a man i will have him and it's none of your business and he must have been absolutely shocked and and outraged and wrote that in his report but it was things like it was um you know they're ha being headstrong and they do say it um absolutely in the um, records you know these two women are headstrong um they're troublemakers you know they were um uh, drinking and you weren't they weren't allowed to drink um uh, doing things you know trying to live a normal life uh, a free life and that was perceived very badly um uh, 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 they you know they call them things like um uh, cunning as black snakes and um in the records and eventually um they were on the case in broom particularly but um martha and lillian were um, uh, decided to, they moved a bit, so they went to Port Hedland and um, lived and got work there. Um, they also got married um, to white men, and um, then they came back to Broome because my mother and my auntie um, Dorothy were in Beagle Bay Mission, and they came back to Broome to pick up my um, my mother and my aunt to take them back to Port Hedland. And the native welfare officers moved in on them and had them arrested and detained. So they were detained in um, the, the Broome Hospital and 
and they were sent to a um a cattle station in the rem- in right in the remote areas of um the east kimberley um and for them so they were they were basically arrested and um and detained almost like under governor's pleasure so they didn't know when they were going to get out mm. and and the reasons for doing that was because they refused to um toe the line they refused to do what they were told to do um and you know it wouldn't wash nowadays obviously but um and um the interesting thing was looking at um, my grandmother's letters initially they were um you know, they were concerned about their rights. They couldn't see, you know, why they were in trouble, why they were removed. Uh, and so they were coming from a human rights um, position. Or um, And then later on, I think they, they broke their spirits because they were, the letters became a bit more bagging. Um, and they were in um, Mullabulla, uh cattle station for about three years. And it was after the war that they were able to, to go back to town. Um, but I think that that must have had an impact on them to be treated like that all the time, like, you know, they were some kind of um, disreputable second-class citizens. Uh, so um, I just, you know, I'm very grateful. I did not grow up in that era, but I so admire um, women like my grandmother, and I know there must other stories out there all across Australia about Aboriginal women who did stand up, um, you know, and and fight the system that was oppressive. And they didn't know, they didn't know that, you know, they grew grew up in an environment where that was a reality, so they were fighting it out of a a, a natural sense of justice. They couldn't see a day when when things would change and, you know... um, despite a lot of the um, disadvantage that our people um, suffer. There's um, light at the end of the tunnel and I see so very clearly that Indigenous culture is being respected and acknowledged, recognised. So they they didn't see that, you know. They were, they were trying to live in a time where there was just oppression all around you. Um, uh, and it was a very difficult life psychologically, physically um and and they triumphed over it they survived now my grandmother lived to um a good age both lived to good old ages and um had a lot of grandchildren and great-grandchildren and um were respected in their family groups and their communities they became respected elders yes and one of the really interesting um, aspects is that, and you've referenced, um, you know, some of the quotes and the language that had been used, um, you know, to describe your mother, sorry, your grandmother and your great grandmother, and um, and one of them is quite illuminating of the biases and the, I guess, prejudice that existed at the time that you're, um, that they were so brave and inspirational, really, to be fighting against in such a, a strong way. Um, the Commissioner of Native Affairs, uh, you write, said, uh, and I quote, irrespective to whether or not these women received military permission to travel from Port Hedland to Broome, they also knew that they would not be permitted to return from Broome as they had been previously warned to this effect. They decided to ignore the warning and now have committed to irrevocable residents north of the leprosy line. They are women of unsavoury reputation and since they have always been headstrong and used to having their own way, it seems that they have deliberately defied the warning. I mean, they are really uh, heroes almost in the sense that they're... Absolutely. Yeah. And that was actually the legal um, uh, pretext they got 
on. There was um, a certain latitude where if you were Aboriginal, you needed permission to pass. Um, to travel um, between and um, because they were blaming any um, outbreaks of leprosy at the time on Aboriginal people so they, they that's what they nailed them on in order to arrest them and send them they were it seemed that they were a little bit remorseful because they were saying you know giving all the options of where they could send these two women and and so they knew too that um, Mullah Bulla was the most uh, uh, draconian measure um, because the women would have been out of their, uh, you know, out of their comfort zone totally in in a very um, in very primitive circumstance, I, I believe, at the time. But the, as you um, have mentioned, Amy, the the issue was that they just wouldn't, um, you know, be uh, wouldn't accept to be told what to do in a everyday life sort of situation. It wasn't like they were great, um, you know, agitating in Parliament or something like that. They just wanted to travel as they saw fit, um, not disturb anyone, but um, uh, and to live their lives. And um, so I think that is illuminating, as you put it, indeed. You know, the, the petty-mindedness and the sense of control and um, without, you know, taking for granted control that um, the uh, uh, people in power over Aboriginal people at the time thought they have without any guilt, without any remorse. Exactly. Um, I'm talking to Professor Pat Dudgeon, who is a psychologist and also a research fellow at the School of Indigenous Studies at the University of Western Australia. And Pat is from the Bardi people of the Kimberley area. Um, so, Pat, you finish off their story um, by saying that they actually eventually successfully applied for a certificate of citizenship which exempted them from the act that was so repressive and that really constrained them in in every way um, possible. What do you think was the outcome for them in terms of them being able to later in life um, have that have a certain amount of freedom still within a colonial context which obviously um, you know was very repressive but what do you think was the outcome for them and how they ended up living their lives and expressing their sexuality and identity? Um, I think look I, um, I think that people did whatever they needed to do in order to survive in that time and and we always need to be conscious of that when we look back in history that you know who were living in and in fairly oppressive situations, they they didn't know what was going to happen in the future. That there'd be such a a great you know challenge to the way things were and a reversal of of um of things. So they anyone you know everyone did what they need to survive. And certainly many of the legislations against um, about Aboriginal people um, uh, involved them under very draconian um, uh, legislation where they're human rights were taken away. However, um, one could apply for exemption and one had to prove that one, you know, didn't associate with other Aboriginal people and a whole range of um, other things. I think they would have gone through motions about that. Um, if uh, uh, So people who applied for exemption were just careful that they weren't seen with their um, relatives, but they certainly mixed with them. Um, I ponder sometimes about... Um, the psychological impact of that and I think that um, was a big message to Aboriginal people at the time that um, Aboriginal people were no good. So um, part of our healing, part of our decolonisation had to 
to be to to challenge that, and which we're doing. You know, we're in the process of doing in any case. But that would have um, really um, uh, sunk into the consciousness of us that um, that you know you played the game to get by, but. Um, uh, the the people who were in control of the game did not think much of Aboriginal culture and um, and people, so you had to get away from it um, in order to try and get some freedoms. And those freedoms were were very flimsy too. You know that um, exemption um, and citizenship could be revoked um, for any reason. Uh, so it was a bit. Uh, it wasn't genuine um, uh, citizenship. It, would be revoked easily. Um, I think um, just uh, I don't know how much time we have, Amy, but uh, you know I, I'm really pleased and proud of my um, my um, contribution to the book. But I, I likewise with all the women's contribution, it was a book about Aboriginal women by Aboriginal women, and certainly we didn't get all the women um, in Australia, but we we tried to get as um, broad representation as we could, and I think that that important too because even now you know there's a lot of writing about Aboriginal people by non-Aboriginal people and I'm interested to to hear our own black voices speaking about our issues and and agendas and priorities so we're we're really chuffed about the book um I'd advise all the uh listeners to go out and buy a copy immediately um (laughs) I agree yeah, it is fabulous, and and I think that what and we didn't look for this. You know, women were um, chose to write whatever story they wanted, but it was interesting um, at the end when we we had all the stories that um, a lot of women were placing themselves in their 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 history, their um, their family history, and their country history. So, um, uh, you know, the predominant theme was that women were you know were connected to their their mothers, their grand mothers in their country so I thought that was a very telling um, issue as well how, how and very you know you know it uh, strengthens that whole thing about Aboriginal connection to to family community um, country um, and their ancestors and that's a theme that came through all the stories as well. Yeah, absolutely. And you do say, uh, or I guess the editors say in the introduction, which would include you, um, a question that arose during the production of this book was, who are our role models? Um, And that there are just so many role models, Aboriginal women, not only the women who've written these chapters, but also their subjects and what they're talking about. And, And it really is also, you know, covers a diversity of topics in terms of leadership, like Aboriginal women and leadership. Um, talking about uh, Aboriginal lesbians and their experience because that's often, um, you know, there's a, a limited um, but now growing body of knowledge on, on Aboriginal women's identity but less so yeah. around the lesbian and experience. Yeah, absolutely. So I feel like this is actually an enormous contribution because it's filling a huge gap that exists and certainly um, educating many who don't get to hear these stories from Aboriginal women themselves. So I really um, congratulate you all on, on such a wonderful book. Thank you. And on behalf of my co-editors and all the women who contributed, and there were there are 11 different stories that you 
said, Amy, they cover a um, diversity of um, different approaches and topics. And I'm, I'm proud that we also had a Torres Strait Islander woman, Vanessa Lee, um, who did a chapter as well and a very powerful poem about, um, you know, the power of women, their history. So um, I'm very, you know, it is difficult to pull together a book and, and, and it was... Um, it was very a very informal process, but what we we uh, the result was um, absolutely fantastic. I'm very proud of it, and um, so thank you on behalf of all the editors and on behalf of all the Aboriginal and Torres Strait women authors. It's my pleasure. Thank you, and it's been really wonderful speaking to you, Pat. We appreciate your time immensely. My pleasure. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. Thanks, Amy. Cheers. Bye. That was. Professor Pat Dudgeon, um, she is a Bardi woman from the Kimberley region and a psychiatrist or psychologist, sorry, uh, and also a research fellow at the School of Indigenous Studies at the University of Western Australia. And uh, she's also commissioner of the Australian National Mental Health Commission um, and has many, many other amazing um, contributions and titles to her name. Um, so, yeah, do check out uh, Pat's work and, and her chapter called Mothers of Sin Indigenous Women's Perceptions of Their Identity and Gender. The book um, that we've been talking about is called Us Women, Our Ways, Our World and uh, it's out by Magabala Books and uh, we'll post up a link to that if you're interested in reading further. Um, It's very uh, rigorously researched um, and and there are some beautiful poems there as Pat mentioned so um, do check that out. And you are listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRFM with Amy Mullins and we get to speak with Michelle Mountain who is Program Manager at the Centre for Contemporary Photography about a particular exhibition that's on in two of the gallery spaces there, two of the rooms um, and it's by German artist Andrea Grotzner and uh, and the title of the exhibition which features two kind of different series of works is Tansi and Herbgarit, which uh, are really amazing um, to walk through and to also just sit in. So um, I recommend spending some time with this. It's on until the 23rd of July. Um, So I'm really pleased now to welcome Michelle. Thanks for joining me, Michelle. Thanks, Amy. It's great to have you. Um, And uh, first of all, Maybe we can just share with people your role at CCP because it sounds like a really fascinating sure. <laughs> um, job that you get to do as well. Um, yes, I'm I'm very lucky um, to be the program manager at CCP, which means that I um, essentially help our curator and director manage our exhibition programs, um, but also our um, public programs and our education program. So it's very full, but very um, interesting role. It's kind of a dream job. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is, I, in my biased view, a dream exhibition um, because it brings together some amazing um, elements in photography that I have not really seen before mm. in this way. Um, she's quite a unique uh, artist and she's somewhat emerging. She's, um, you know, been around and has done, you know, has many qualifications in photography. Um, but do you think, is she kind of an emerging artist? 
I I think she is um, an emerging artist. Um, she finished her masters in 2014 and has been doing really great work since then. Um, this year, she was uh, named one of the artists um, who was selected as part of Foam Talent, which is a great um, platform for sort of checking out who the up-and-coming photographers are um, of our generation. So, yeah. Mm, well, it's a big honour um, to be part of that, isn't it? A huge honour, yes. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I went to, to see this in person and I was initially um, looking at the images online and they are very striking to see um, even just in a small scale. But then when you um, walk into the gallery and you see them much larger... Um, it's so striking because they're so colourful, but also um, these are abstract photographs, but you can disseminate or decipher bits of what she's photographing. But it's just so um, clever in the sense that it's of a guest house in, in Germany, um, in Polenz, which has, um, as we know, is a village which is close to Germany's eastern Border, and it's an old guest house built in 1898. So it's not necessarily a modernist building, so to speak, but her aesthetic and um, the abstraction and expressions that she's creating in this through colour and through form are really quite um, modernist. Could you share with us, um, I guess, what what the works are, the essential works, particularly in the um, of the guest house, because that is um, the largest room with uh, the greatest number of works and, and that being one of the key um, content pieces of the, the exhibition. What is she doing and how is she doing it? Um, well, I think really Andrea's sort of hit on to something quite fantastic and in some ways universal um, that we all have spaces that are really complex. They have different memories, different histories. And um, when she approached this guest house, which she, you know, it had memories for her community. It has personal memories for herself. Um, their dances, proms, school graduations held in this building. And when she, tr she spent, um, I think it was a few years sort of going back and re-photographing the building and its architecture, but she felt really it's impossible to capture all of that. Um, it's really hard, you know, sometimes there are no words and sometimes there are no photographs that really articulate what you're trying to, um, trying to communicate. So instead she's used um, this fantastic lighting device, um, setting up flashes around the building that when she takes a shot, they all go off at different times and create a whole new space. Um, it's a flatter space. Like you said, it's a more um, modern looking space. She's creating something new. Um, and I think there, there are lots of different levels um, of things happening that from one point of view, she's flattening it and we can kind of feel that we can't access that space and we can't reach into it. But she's also presenting us with something really exciting and new, um, sort of, it's just like treats for the eyes really to yes. get in there <laughs> and um, dissect it. Yeah. It is, yeah. You could spend a lot of time just in front of one, mm. um, let alone the, the whole room. And she does... Um, you know, focus her attentions on one particular 
part of this guest house a few times. I think there's about four or five photographs which um, really capture this space, but in different ways with different coloured lighting and Mm -hmm. at times a different perspective. But as you say, it does flatten the space, but then it creates unusual depth in it too with the shadows and coloured shadows that exist um, in these pieces. And I'm talking in particular, one of them is untitled number five and um, I've posted it up on our social media on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram if anyone wants to really get an idea of what we're talking about here. Um, But there's so many colours and tones. There's orange, there's aqua, there's kind of like a beautiful mauvey purple and some salmon pink on the right. It's just got this it's a delight, as you say, to look at um, visually. But then you're also trying to decipher what is that thing that she has captured exactly? What is it in real life? And how has she really created this amazing effect, which has essentially created a whole new subject? I mean, what um, when Andrea came to, to Melbourne, because she had come for the opening... Um, did she kind of talk about, I guess, her rationale behind photographing, um, you know, similar areas but in different ways or, you know, because there is a little bit of a series yes. here. Well, I think it's all part of her process um, of photographing and re-photographing and she shoots in film. So, um the, she wouldn't know what the image necessarily looks like until she's processed the film in a dark room. Um, she does shoot initially um, in some digital just to get a sense of what it would look like. But really there's this element of um, when she clicks the shutter all the lights go off at different times and um, what's captured in the camera is sort of this really amazing surprise. Um, And so I think where you see multiples, it's from her going back or trying different lights or different approaches and just playing again and again. And I think um, there is something amazing about her. She's investigating the space and we have to investigate the space with her when we look at the works. Absolutely, we do. Um, And I think in terms of how it's curated, um, this show and the layout of the artworks is also really interesting. Um, And you can see an interplay between um, that particular work we're talking about, Untitled 5. So there's two of those works of the same size but different colour. And then you look directly across the other side of the room where there's a a really nice um, wooden kind of bench for you to sit on. And there's basically mirrored um, but in a much larger print uh, the same subject but in a captured in a different angle on one side and looking the same on the other but with a whole new um, colour scheme and different lighting and it's I found it particularly striking when looking at these images that it was so hard to believe that there wasn't post-production involved because it was so precise and so crystal clear and the colours were just so bold that it just defies all logic that she didn't do something after how did she manage to do that um oh she's a magician yeah (laughs) um no she's a she's a very very skilled photographer um the the she did give me um sort of a little insight which is quite interesting when you know it uh, if you look around the images, the more softer pastel colours are often actually colours that are part of the building. So it has sort of this wild sort of dated decor. Um, but when you see those really bright, vibrant colours, that's um, simply the lights um, from the flash 
that um, come out so vibrant and so clear. They do. That's really interesting um, because, yeah, when I was looking at one in particular that's quite large um, and it's got, that's right, it's like a wood panel. So it is it is a little bit kitsch and there's a pink, pastel pink curtain um, and then there's this uh, shadow on the wall of this kind of large lampshade just dangling down and it's this, but it's got a beautiful pink shadow um, yes. on it to match the curtains and also um, then you look over at the, the wooden door frame and there's this beautiful um, kind of slightly pastel neon light blue around the frame as well. So there's this kind of interplay of colours happening in really subtle ways. Um, Yes, it's sort of, um, yeah, what she does, the way she works with it um, is amazing and I think part of it is she must just have such a keen eye for for those sorts of things and part of it is that she shoots again and again and sort of that um, selection of curated images would have come from a huge selection of images and I know that she worked very closely with our curator Pepper Meln um, to sort of have it a layout in place and everything really planned before we installed it. Um, that said, there were at times you know, we react to the space and um, you sort of mentioned the wooden bench and she lined that up with a wooden beam in the ceiling and that in turn is lined up with um, a photograph where there's a really strong red beam of light right down the middle of the image. Um, So there is a play as well thinking about the architecture of the space Mm. um, and how those images play with it. It comes across really strongly, yeah. it's It just goes to show that it's just as important to have a well-curated show as much as excellent works to be working with. And that space is a really great space for it. I want to talk about when you just um, you walk into CCP and there's um, um, a exhibition by an artist when you walk through, but then you turn left and there is another of Andrea's works, um, which is the Tansy work, and yes. it's just amazing. Um, <laughs> it's going to be hard to describe, um, but it's of these women who are dancing together in that way that you, in an old-fashioned way, you would, you know, with your mm. um, hand around the person's back and you know the, um, clasping each other's palms and the older ladies they're wearing these fantastically bright colored um tops that are really highly patterned and um really interesting you can see their gold little watches and the their rings and some people are gripping on really tight and other people are just kind of loosely um touching each other and it's this beautiful feeling of Um, platonic love I guess Mm. between mothers and grandmothers and women in general Um, and it's in this space that she's actually photographing. Could you share with us a bit more about that uh, work? Sure. Um, Yeah so Tansti um, means tea dance and the guest house has these um, afternoon tea dances. Um, Most of the people in the photograph are women. I think there are about two men and I asked her about that and she said oh, you know, the the men often just like to sit down and and have a break and have a chat and a drink. Um, But there were also these tables of widows um, and she was just sort of amazed by the women dancing with each other and the movement and the colour. And I think there is something that we can all relate to when you see their hands. We just, we all know sort of those grandmother's hands um, and the jewellery and something that's really interesting is that 
I don't know if you would have noticed in the space, but the opposite wall is beige. And she painted the wall beige because she said they all arrived in these beige coats. <laughs> and then <laughs> as they took them off, sort of revealed these incredible sort of insane patterns and colours on their clothing underneath. Um, and she was taking photographs for the guest house, um, just some promotional shots. And so the photographs are actually much larger and are of the people dancing. But as she was looking at them, she started focusing in closer and closer on sort of the people holding each other and the movement and the fabrics sort of um, colliding. Yeah. Yeah. It's because it's cropped in really closely, um, you know, to their torso. So you mm. can't actually see their heads, you know, their identity is hidden. But yes. um, what's really powerful as well visually um, is that. Uh, it's really they're all I guess bunched together so it's just in a in a row basically I think how many uh, images are there oh, I've forgotten that's a good question um I think they're uh, maybe 16 or yeah. more um but yes they sort of make one big image yeah. from a whole lot of smaller prints um which you know it is it makes sense. And she said as she was laying out, you know, her smaller test prints, it just made sense that they be all together um, and become sort of this one big work. Yeah, it's like a really large collage of um, of colour and pattern mm. and vibrancy. And also, you know, because she's using um, flash photography, it is it does have a different effect as well um, when you see their skin and, and the way that um, they're holding each other. It's more stark. Yes, um, it's certainly the, the colours are kind of more intensified and you can really see the wrinkles in their arms. And you can actually, if you look close enough, you can see the time on their watches <laughs> and you can watch the time pass um, wow. in the different yeah, photographs. Can. Yeah, oh. it's pretty amazing. Wow, I had not even noticed that. That's really great. Um, and also... So we're looking at works that Andrea Grotzner has done um, in, in 2014 and 2015, but she's been working, as you say, mm. for quite a, a many years since she's graduated. And she's been showing, I think in one of her interviews, she said um, she's been traveling and showing her work in such constant um, periods and cycles that she really um, hasn't had time to just stop and, you know, be grounded somewhere yeah. yeah she's you know been really focused on her work and creating new pieces and new mm -hmm. series and um and you brought in one of the books here um which features some of the works from um this series that you're exhibiting but also does have some um other really amazing works that are of i guess exteriors architectural exteriors yes. in a i'm guessing it's a similar area um of post-world war ii uh, Germany and, and the types of architecture that were built then, um, mm. which were sometimes controversial because there were some would say quite ugly, um, but others, well, I would say in these images, they're very beautiful. Um, what do you think in terms of her work um, is really striking to you? Because there are a range of, of subjects here, but what do you think her unique, I guess, um, talent or offering is? Yes. Well, um, this is very personal, but I, I think for me, um, she seems to hit on something that I feel um, is familiar and unfamiliar. Um, it's sort of that thing that hits you in the gut when you when you look at her images. And she just a week ago, um, because while she was here, she did a residency at RMIT. Um, she sent us through 
just some mock-ups or some uh, sort of initial photographs she had taken of the RMIT building um, at the top of Swanson Street. (laughs) And um, I had that same moment of seeing something that's so familiar and yet it was completely new, experiencing it in a whole new way. Um, So for me, that's what she really brings to the table. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, you've really beautifully summarised that. Um, So true. Uh, And I really recommend that people go to see this at least once because I'll be going back for another look. Um, And it's on till the 23rd of July, but you also have, um, I think, an event coming up um, to discuss it with uh, Naomi Cass, who's the director and a couple of other photographers. Um, So people can get involved in in the programs that are around, can't they? Yes, they can. Um, So... I, I hope I don't have the date wrong, but I believe we have a, a vernissage event on the 19th of July. Um, if anyone is interested, they're welcome to just give us a call and inquire. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the book that we were just talking about with some of the other works is called Zoo Gast Photographian, and it's published by Museum Faltzgallery Kaiserslautern. Uh, apologies to any German people who <laughs> may cringe when I say that, but you can also check it out on the New York Times website because they had a, a photograph series of those works as well. So um, she's definitely around and getting better known and I'm so glad that she is. Thank you, Michelle, for coming in and talking about this amazing exhibition. Thanks, Amy. It's been a pleasure. It's my pleasure. And uh, we've just been speaking to Michelle Mountain, who's Program Manager at the Centre for Contemporary Photography, the CCP, uh, in Fitzroy and you can check out this exhibition uh, which is by Andrea Grotzner it's Tansty and Herb Gericht and uh, it's just phenomenal I can't stress it anymore um, because yeah it's just it's a feast for the eyes and the senses so hope you can get on down to see that if it's if it sounds like something you'd be interested in. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRFM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.